Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 223 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Avery, your host. Our topic today is family caregivers and public health messages about sexually transmitted infections. Public health is a responsibility of various levels of government for protecting and promoting the health of populations, communities and groups against various risks to their health. Infectious diseases and the risks have always been a challenge because reports about them can be alarming for people as well as governments, continue to be alarming like the mid-2013 report from Reuters, the respected news agency, that Chinese and American researchers had found that the then new H7N9 bird flu virus may be capable of spreading from person to person. Infectious diseases of always challenge public health to find ways to prevent spread through public and personal hygiene, to find ways to protect people vulnerable to infectious diseases, and to find ways to respond to controversies like methods of protection, such as vaccination. Infectious diseases have always challenged public health to find ways to describe risks of infectious disease in a way that alert populations to risk, promote effective prevention and protection, and avoid fear and panic, which is why our topic today, family caregivers and public health messages about sexually transmitted infections, is so important. To discuss it, our guests are Dr. Des Spence and Julia Belouz. Des is a full-time family physician in Scotland. He's written for the British Medical Journal for many years. He's intent on challenging traditional medical conventions because he believes that medicine has the capacity to do harm as well as good. He says that today everyone is a patient as a result of thoughtless health promotion programs, charities, direct-to-consumer advertising, all of which have established the health anxiety culture that's consuming our sense of well-being. He says that less medicine is more medicine because physicians have a duty not only to treat the sick but also to protect the well. Now, Julia is a Canadian journalist focused on healthcare and policy. She writes the award-winning blog Science-ish for Maclean's magazine. 
She's currently senior editor at the Medical Post, a magazine and service for physicians. She's a graduate of the London School of Economics and Ryerson University's Journalism School. She'll be a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT starting in the fall of 2013. And she can be followed on Twitter at Julia of Toronto. Julia of Toronto. So welcome to the show, Des and Julia. Thank you. Hi. Now, Des, let's start with you. Please tell us a little more about your personal story. Um, I've been um, a family physician in uh, Scotland for uh, 20 years, and um, I've been involved in uh, lots of different uh, uh, initiatives. But um, as you say, in recent times, uh, I've been involved in um, writing about the harms that patients and um, we're talking particularly about uh, sexual health. And uh, in that regard, um, we have a, a large student practice and we work for Glasgow University. And for quite some time, I've become increasingly concerned by the, um, the negative uh, impact of, of, of the health promotion on people's uh, students' kind of well-being. And I've seen it uh, uh, cause many problems within relationships and uh, generate lots of fear and lots of anxiety. And um, so I, I said about, I suppose, looking at the research base. Right. Now, I'm going to stop you there only because we're going to talk about that in much more detail in um, an upcoming segment. Uh, Julia, same question for you. Please tell us more about your personal story. Thank you very much for, for that introduction. I thought it was uh, quite comprehensive. But one of the things uh, that, that I'd add is just that uh, my passion in journalism has been to look at this gap that exists right now between research and how it's reported in the media and how it's used by policymakers um, and practitioners like Des. So uh, that's one of the things that uh, attracted me to his work because uh, I think he, he's interested in the same things. Right. Now, Des, back to you. What did you say about the public health messages about sexually transmitted infections in the column that you wrote for the British Medical Journal? Des? Well, I wrote um, um, things, I suppose, are common to quite a lot of public health messages in that um, they, uh, it was based largely on, on fear. It generated uh, enormous anxiety. And the messages that they were putting across were, were very simplistic, relatively unbiased. Uh, and um, largely, uh, you know, not based upon the, the, the science. And uh, generally, I suppose my my feeling is that uh, um, it's caused a stigmatizing of uh, of sexual health rather than sort of normalizing uh, um, you know, sexual infections. Right, Julia. What was it that you read in the column by Des that led you to write your article for the Medical Post in Canada? Yeah, I thought he did such a fantastic job of showing this uh, this discrepancy. So I think he talked about how uh, the public health community and doctors should try to convey the facts and not fear. And so he was kind of looking at this failure that uh, public health has around uh, communicating the risks related to STIs. And I think part of that is also communicating uncertainty and, and uh, communicating maybe more nuanced messages instead of just hitting people over the head with these fear-based, uh, fear-based messages, as he called them. And so I thought that was a really interesting idea to, right. to uh, expound upon. Now, we have to take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Dr. Des Spence and Julia Belouz. 
You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Power River. Please stay with us. We're coming back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Build a better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Des Spence and Julia Belus. Uh, our topic is family caregivers and public health messages about sexually transmitted infections. So now let's talk about sexually transmitted infections from the various perspectives of public health, family medical practice, family caregiving, and journalism. So Des, starting with you, what sexually transmitted infections are the main concerns for public health, and what are the risks associated with those infections? Des? Okay, well, that's a that's a big question, but uh, I suppose for most people, it, uh, the main anxiety is HIV. And um, but actually, when you look at the science underneath uh, uh, the risk, you realise that uh, it's relatively rare within the heterosexual community, and uh, the chances of actually being uh, infected by somebody who, who's HIV, even when they are, are, aren't in treatment, is actually very low. So the um, uh, the actual risk to people is relatively low. And um, from a public health perspective, um, HIV is now treatable, and um, people often have a normal life expectancy. So the fear and the, the, the kind of fairly crude messages that go about HIV don't reflect the science. Secondly, I suppose, there's issues around, uh, around herpes. Um, again, this is much more common than people realise, perhaps uh, 30% of the population. The incidence is relatively stable. But importantly, it's, people don't appreciate that it's actually treatable. And uh, in many ways, it's certainly, you know, in terms of a not, ni- not a nice thing to have, but it's more of an inconvenience uh, rather than a, uh, an eye sentence. And um, so the other thing that uh, is very prevalent and that people are concerned about uh, is human papillomavirus or, or, or genital warts. But um, <clears throat> with the, uh, um, the advent of uh, um, perhaps smears uh, and uh, uh, also the, um, the, the vaccination program in younger women, that uh, the public health uh, dangers of phenopathic virus are now limited, to, to say the least. Right. 
Julian, as a journalist writing for news media directed at physicians, what opinion did you form of the public health concerns about the risks associated with these sexually transmitted diseases? Well, I think that's really hit the nail on the head by, by addressing that discrepancy between the actual risks and the way the perceptions of risk or the way people think about uh, the dangers around STIs. Um, one of the things that was heartening to see was some comments under the article about how uh, doctors were concerned, like Des, about stigmatization and about fear-mongering and that they wanted, at least in these comments, they seemed to want a more rational, um, evidence-based way to communicate those risks to patients. And uh, I think there, there was some disappointment about the way uh, public health messaging happens right now with the status quo. So that was interesting to see. Back to you, Des. As a family doctor, family physician, what do you see as the effects on families, family caregivers, and family members of the way public health presents the risks of sexually transmitted diseases, and particularly the diseases it highlights? What, what about that? I think my concern about the public health message is that uh, it's almost uh, universally negative and that uh, um, because the, the messages that we try and convey are based upon on, on, on fear, that uh, that itself becomes increasingly stigmatizing. So the impact is that uh, um, it can, um, the diagnosis of common sexual transmitted disease can see the breakdown of chips, you can see uh, complications from that with persistent anxiety and low mood and um, there's a uh, which is very mixed and, and relatively unscientific there's often a anxiety about uh, a fear for the future and um, uh, mixed up uh, the anger so it has a um, as it conveyed at the moment uh, have a very negative impact upon people's sense of well-being can it actually impair the relationships in families, perhaps maybe even to the point of causing them to break up, Des? Certainly in my experience, that uh, happens frequently. And some research evidence suggests that uh, it is quite a common occurrence, particularly in relationships that have been formed. So, yes, I mean, there's, uh, um, that's, that's a frequent uh, situation. Now, Julian, how do you compare the handling by public health of its concerns about sexually transmitted infections with its handling of public fear of vaccination? I guess there's some uh, there's a tendency maybe toward the paternalistic. So when you think about the flu vaccine every year, the messaging tends to be get the flu vaccine or else you'll uh, you'll infect uh, your the elderly in your family and children with influenza and they put them at risk of death. Um, and as we know, there's, there are many questions about the flu vaccine and its efficacy, particularly uh, in those groups. Um, and so it's interesting to sometimes see, I don't know how there's that tendency toward, yeah, fear-mongering and maybe overblowing um, not taking a nuanced approach to risk communication, not communicating or failing to communicate uncertainty, and maybe kind of over overblowing risks and uh, tending toward the paternalistic. Right. Now, Julia, I want to stay with you on that particular point. There's a good deal, though, of concern about the type of arguments that are used against 
um, vaccination, particularly in children, against um, what many people would regard as the traditional infectious diseases of, of childhood. Maybe that's a false perception on my part, but come back to it, the sense that autism might be mm-hmm. created by vaccination. Um, in I'm from Britain, as everybody can tell, the sad story of some of the, what amounted to fraud in the way in which the concerns were being expressed. Um, how did, in your view, how did public health, how effective were they in dealing with the negativism towards vaccination in the context I've just mentioned. Julian? Yeah, I guess that's an interesting question. So I think it it gets at this idea that uh, stories are what moves people sometimes maybe more than evidence. And we're not, as we know, we're not always rational actors. And when when I've written about um, the anti-vaccination movement and talked to physicians about it, some have now begun relying on stories themselves in clinics, so showing parents videos of what it would look like if their child got polio, um, but moving people with emotional messages instead of, uh, you know, trying to compel them with rational facts or, or the evidence. Um, but I guess I'm, I'm optimistic in the sense that I think if people had better access to clean information and um, if information was well contextualized and physicians took the time to um, explain things and public health uh, maybe did a better job at communicating the actual risks uh, related to not taking your vaccines or, or not uh, getting your flu shot or um, the risks, like what we've been talking about, the risks related to uh, sexually transmitted infections and maybe, you know, there would be more trust and people would be compelled to act in a more uh, evidence-informed manner. Des, I'd like to go back to you with a two-part kind of follow-up question to what Julia was saying. Mm-hmm. First of all, do you use stories uh, when you're discussing the effects of sexually transmitted Im- information, you know what I mean by that, that is the information about it, on them. And do you agree with Julia in the sense that stories are often a better way to the heart and mind than the hard and sometimes incomprehensible facts? Now, I do recognize that's a loaded question, but what do you think, Des? I mean, it's absolutely true, you know, that um, when you try and communicate with people, you can't. Uh, uh, people are turned off by, uh, by the numbers, so you have to try and confess it in a way that they're going to relate to, and often a story is a very effective way of doing that. And I think it's important to uh, remember, particularly in medicine, that it's, it's not a, you know, it's, a, it's an emotional kind of uh, contact you're making with, with, with the patient, so you need to, you, you need to understand that. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, using stories is, a, is a, 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 a very typical way, I suppose, of, of, of the way that uh, doctors can sell, but they're probably doing a sort of slightly subconscious way, so they're not even aware that they're doing it. But uh, yes, that's a, that's a common approach. Des, still with you, um, there's growing concern uh, on the part of physicians and many other people that in some respects, because science has come to dominate medicine so much, medicine may have lost or be losing its soul, uh, its soul for caring and relating to people who need the help of doctors. What do you think, Des? 
I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, the, the interesting thing, of course, is that uh, um, um, it, you know, true illness is relatively rare. And um, so most of the people that you see are, are coming in because they're anxious or they've been made anxious by a public awareness campaign or some sort of celebrity splash from a, from a sort of fading star. And um, so you need to... Uh, you need to be alive to, 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 to that fact. And, and the most effective type of medicine actually is doing very little. You know, the power of reassurance, the power of doing nothing at all. So, um, and that's the soul of medicine. You know, if, uh, um, if it was just a question of following algorithms or, or crunching the numbers, well, we could get a computer to do it or we could follow, you know, just follow a simple flow chart. So, yeah, I mean, the, the soul of medicine is about trying to, uh, to reassure people. Julia. As a journalist, would you agree with the proposition that medicine is losing its soul because of the dominance of science? Would you agree with that to any degree or not? Uh, that's, a, that's another good question. I think uh, you, I hear and have read a lot about uh, this push to move back to the bedside, so to get uh, physicians to think more about um, the encounter with the patient and more about bedside manner and how important that is. And, and with the, we were talking about EMRs, um, electronic medical records and laptops and iPads in clinics, sometimes there's this uh, perception of a, divi a divide between the patient, the computer screen, and the doctor. Um, but I'm not sure that that's entirely true because I think sometimes it's, when you think about it, at least in Canada what they're doing in medical schools they're, they've introduced uh, things like journaling to get to get medical students to reflect on what they're learning and uh, diarize uh, to, or to think, think about their experiences and to think about the encounters with the patient and how to, um, to improve those and to build those relationships so um, so I know, I guess that there there is maybe this move away from the bedside, and but then at the same time, I think that the medical community is recognizing that and trying to respond to it as well. So I guess only time will tell. We'll see how this next generation uh, of doctors how they deal with the incursion of more uh, technology and. Uh, I guess that, that that's a little bit different from your question, maybe about science, but I think it, it's all uh, it ties in. Just a very quick follow-up question, Julia, and it's this: that one of the big discussions in public health, certainly in my time, was um, people are living longer, they're healthier to uh, an older age, and. Many of the curable diseases are either cured, cured or well cared for, but what we are encountering is, a, is the incurable diseases, the end-of-life conditions, the mental health conditions for which there is ni neither cure nor prevention. And in that sense, uh, this is a journalistic question of PhD length, and we've only got half a minute, but if I could just ask you this, is that, in fact something to do with the way in which society is progressing that because the population is getting older we're handling different types of conditions for which normal medical care can do a lot less than it could with some of the older type of conditions what do you think absolutely the, now doctors are they're managing chronic diseases and multiple chronic diseases and um, people, as you said, are living longer, and the health, health systems, uh, well, the medical profession is a conservative one, and it's 
being required to change from, you know, being reactive and responding to um, acute or, uh, you know, infections that would put people in the hospital overnight to, you know, people living with obesity and diabetes over long periods of time. And I think that transformation is going to happen slowly and it, it would be nice if, if it could happen faster and we could do better with um, hospitals and long and sorry, moving people out of hospitals into the community and long-term care and whatnot. But um, I think that's going to take time, right? It's, it's a huge uh, transformation that we're, we're living through. And what's interesting to note is that the next generation is going to be, uh, we won't be living uh, as long as our parents have. Um, so how that will change things will, will be interesting to see as well. Right. Now, it is time um, for the break. Uh, this is Dr. Gordon Natalie. My guests are Dr. Des Spence and Julia Belouz. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Palm River. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Want the inside scoop about what's going on in the social networks of art and entertainment? Tune in to Star Power Hour, brought to you by 4talent.com. We'll talk to the top professionals in the entertainment industry and find out what they're working on and what's next. Your host is James Barber, who has his finger on the pulse of the arts and entertainment world. Star Power Hour, brought to you by 4talent.com, live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. When you make decisions, do you ever find yourself in doubt? Are you trying to figure out what's right with you? Are you ready to truly change your life? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the founders of Access Consciousness, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane Here. Consciousness is all about including everything and judging nothing. Our program will help you break free from your personal limitations and enhance positive change in all areas of your life. Tune in to Access Consciousness, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Des Spence and Julia Belouz. Our topic is family caregivers and public health messages about sexually transmitted infections. Now, given that information provided to the public about public health risks should be timely, trustworthy, understandable and useful, let's discuss methods for providing information to families, family caregivers and family members about public health risks that could affect them. So Des, please, given this, the potential to harm family relationships, um, which you mentioned, arising from public health information that's overblown. How do you, as a family doctor, explain to your patients the risks of sexually transmitted infections? Um, I think, firstly, I, I, mean, I, I try to, to play down to, to tell people about these risks. 
So, um, firstly, I, I, I do explain that there is a high prevalence of, of these infections. So, there, there are many, many people have had them. For example, you know, half the population may be exposed to human papillomavirus, and 30% of the population may have had herpes at one time or another. Um, I certainly do play down the uh, long-term complications because there's very little uh, good uh, prevalence data and scientific data to. To, to, to show that they are linked with, with high rates of uh, complications. Um, uh, um, I also do explain that these um, conditions are, are treatable and that, um, uh, that they may happen for a time. And then, as I said before, there may be an inconvenience, but we can certainly treat them. Um, I also try and explain that some of these infections, particularly like herpes uh, and H. Uh, human papillomavirus and uh, can be dormant for a time. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the present partner may have been uh, unsafe. And generally, I attempt to uh, normalise these infections and make people understand that they are very common and they have very few uh, uh, complications and to demystify and, and destigmatise the, the infections. Right. Now, Julia, given that what journalists write about must be timely and newsworthy, how do you gauge the timeliness and trustworthiness of information coming from public health sources? So it's a, the same as uh, the, the way I gauge information coming from any source I write about. So um, when you're in journalism, you're always thinking about is it new and is it fresh and uh you, you try to confirm it with at least, usually at least two other sources to make sure it's factual. Um, and so that's the, I apply that same standard to information coming from public health. Are there any complications that you have to deal with in, in, the, in the information that's coming from public health sources? I mean, for example, how understandable is it? Uh, how much, I mean, for example, we, I mentioned in the introduction this virus, H7N9. That means nothing to me, and I suspect a lot of other people as well. To what extent do you chase up that detailed technical information to see whether it's being presented accurately. Julia? So I think, yeah, I think public health, well, anything to do with health is an interesting area because, as you said, it, I think it does require some degree of specialization. And if you have the um, resources to dive into the subject area, you can do a much better job of covering it and understanding what you're writing about. And uh, the thing that sets it apart from a lot of other areas is that it ends up, the, what you report on impacts the cho health choices people make. Um, I've spoken to health ministers who say they rely on journalism uh, to inform them about, you know, emerging science or uh, about, you know, I guess we're talking about public health, about uh, things around public health as well. And if you're not reporting in an accurate way, in an evidence-based way, then that has big, big impact on how people live their lives and the decisions people make and on policy as well. So I think um, that's hugely important to, to make sure that the information you're reporting is trustworthy, that it's accurate, uh, and especially with health and health sciences, that it's contextualized. Right. Des, what typically are the questions that families ask you when you've explained to them the risks of sexually transmitted infections that are relevant in their context? And how do you respond to their questions, the family's questions? Well, I mean, um, I mean, they're quite specific. Depend upon the uh, uh, depend upon the, the infection, um, and the first uh, um, uh, the most common, I suppose, is 
uh, ask whether they, they are going to be able to have children because the common thing with people with chlamydia, which is very common anyway, probably have a third or, or 30 or 40% of the population at one time or another, they, they assume that they're going to be infertile. So you, you assume that that's not going to be the case and there's no evidence that there's increased infertility. And then people uh, ask whether, whether they're going to get cancer because they assume that a human papillomavirus is that's linked to cancer. And again, you just have to reassure them that that, that isn't the case. And um, um, I suppose the other common question is whether it can be treated or not. And of course, most of these things can be. Um, and then the, the other common questions are obviously why me and uh, who's given it to me? And, and, uh, and these, are, these, are, these are obviously more difficult to, to, to unpick. But again, as I said before, um, it's important to highlight that uh, uh, many of these uh, infections are dormant for times. So you try and reassure people that it doesn't necessarily mean that there's been any infidelity in, in, the, in the last you know, last few weeks or last few months or last few years necessarily. Um, and as I said before, I mean, the key, I, I think, is, uh, is is attempting to, 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 to make these seem like everyday infections that they're normal things to have. And that in itself helps to remove the, the stigma and hopefully some of the anxiety people feel. Right. Julian, given that what journalists write about and write must be interesting to their readers and that infectious disease is a complex subject. How do you gauge the understandability and usefulness to your medical readers of information coming from public health sources? Yeah, when, I'm, when I'm writing for the physician audience, physicians tend to desire standard uh, of science and of medical information. You can communicate more, maybe uh, you know, you can assume knowledge on the part of your readership. Um, but anytime there's something new coming out, I'm trying to think about does this matter to doctors? Um, is this going to be new or fresh to them? Uh, how will it improve their practice or how will it improve their understanding of medicine? Um, and it's, so it's, I guess, similar or similar to, to writing any type of news, but when it's a niche audience, again, it's that level of understanding, that, that assumed knowledge that you can come in with that's a little bit different than writing for a general audience, but the principles of news uh, apply there as well. Now, I'm going to go back to Des on this question. Des, you're a family physician. Um, I come from a family of family physicians or a family physician um how do you keep yourself up to date given that as a general practitioner you really have to cope with everything that comes through the door rare common whatever it is so how do you keep up to date i personally feel that the issues around keeping up to date Again, I slightly over, overstated, overblown, because you know, medicine does change, but it changes relatively slowly. And um, as long as people, you know, read a, a general medical journal um, on a kind of weekly basis and, and have a, a supportive peer group, then you know, I'm not saying it's easy, but you know, it's fairly straightforward to, to keep uh, keep up to date. So. Um, I think the other key thing is to rely upon um, a range of different sources to make, but make sure those uh, resources are, are high quality. So that would be obviously you know, sticking to, 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 to established uh, journals. Julia, back to you. Do you actually find yourself reading the journals or are you 
basically relying on your interviews or whatever it is, your way of gathering information from the people you're doing your background checks with, background checks on information I'm talking about. Um, in other words, how far do you go into probing the medical literature as such? I, I always try to go back to primary sources, so I'm in a little bit of a privileged position in that I'm not um, generally on daily deadlines writing multiple stories every day as some of my counterparts working in newspapers or newswires might be, um, who might, may feel more, maybe more pressed for time. Um, but even still, I think we should all make an effort to read the primary sources and then try to talk to the actual author or lead author of the article and then people who might have diverging viewpoints or ask the author about the limitations of their study and about their methods and about, um, about you know, people who might not agree with them or, uh, you know, what, where, their, where their new study fits in the context of the literature that exists. Um, I also try to seek out systematic reviews on the issue that I'm looking at. So those, as you probably are all well aware, they synthesize all the best available research on a given question, so I try to seek those out to put the uh, study that I'm looking at or the new uh, research that I'm looking at into context. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you, Julia, just as a follow-up, and then I'll put the same question to Des, um, and that is this. There's some suggestion that family caregivers, family members, and people who are um, coping, living with, complex medical conditions should have something like the clinical practice guideline that doctors use. As, as you know, these are documents produced by uh, people who have expertise in the particular topic who give their best opinion of the best approach given the best existing knowledge to particular medical challenges. Now, very often that's written in techno, medical techno talk. But I'm wondering, Julia first and then Des, what do you think about the idea of family care guidelines written for families in language they can understand but which interprets the best thinking about the approaches to particular problems. Julia, what do you think about that idea? I think, I think in some ways that, that already exists. So again, with, with uh, systematic reviews, so the Cochrane Collaboration has gone to great lengths to uh, summarize their research in plain language summaries that, that are available that are understandable for a lay audience, and you have all kinds of resources um, on the internet that, uh, that that do just that, that are that are evidence based, um, and that that give summaries of the best, you know, the, the thinking that's based on the best available evidence around uh, various medical conditions or drugs. Um, but I think the problem is getting, making sure people have access to those and that they know that those are available and that they don't just turn to Dr. Google to, you know, put their <laughs> symptoms in a search engine and hope for the best. Right. Des, what do you think about the idea of family care guidelines? Um, I'd slightly misgivings about it in that, um, you know, sometimes it depends on, you know, a, a, a guideline always has is open to bias and I think there's a strong argument that people can actually resource this information fairly easily online as long as they stick to fairly you know, well informed uh, websites. Um, I'm actually slightly uh, anxious about the notion of having you know the, the, the sort of world specialist writing on, on, on a topic because 
they themselves bring a, a kind of bias into the, the, the information they give. And there's a very strong argument that uh, um, any of these health messages should be filtered through a, through a generalist, through, you know, through a sort of family physician. And, um, um, you know, that, that's, that those avenues of, of accessing information are, are, are very people familiar with and, and, and people trust them. And as long as you have a, an appropriately regulated kind of... Um, Medical services. I, I, I suppose I'm biased, but I, I would like that's the way that I would see people accessing information. Perfectly fair. Thank. That was an interesting response from both of you. It's again time for the break. This is Dr. Gordon Adley, and my guests are Dr. Des Spence and Julia Belouz. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Power River. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. All the changes you make in your life are positive, whether you realize it or not. And you can continue to create even more change to improve your life by tuning in to Pure Talk Radio with host Bonnie Worth. Bonnie sees everything as a learning life experience, and it only gets better as you go. Embrace life with the passion and enthusiasm it was meant to be lived with. Learn and become inspired. Listen to Pure Talk Radio every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Now, we're, going, we're talking about the things that you would like to do and see done to counter fear caused by overblown public health messages and to help families, family caregivers, and family members better understand the risks that are important to them. So, Julia, what would, more would you like to do and see done by the journalism profession um, to do those things, to counter fear by overblown public health messages and to help families and family caregivers? What would you like? to see them. Julie? I think just building on what we're, we're talking about with um, using, going, actually going back to the medical literature, um, asking the people who, you know, picking up the phone, calling people who uh, wrote the journal article that you're reporting on or people who maybe wrote a systematic review on a subject that you're reporting on and asking them about the evidence and about the limitations of their studies or about um, you know, put it to asking them for help to put the research uh, in context or to put the public health question you're looking at into context um, instead of just, you know, perpetuating unfounded fears or uh, reporting on things that might be, you know, be reporting on messages that might be pushed by a vested interest. So to take a little bit of a, a skeptical uh, gaze and an evidence-based approach to health reporting um, is what I'd like to see more of. I was a researcher way back when, and always we would finish the 
scientific article for a scientific journal with the advice that further research is needed. To what extent do you think that the research, the momentum and interest in and desire for research tends to drive the idea of fear, concern and over-importance of particular things. Julian? So I don't know. What, what, do, you, what do you mean? Sorry. That to, okay. What sure I'm, you... Perfectly fair. What, what I'm saying is that every researcher um, finishes an article by recommending further research. Yeah, yeah. Right? And I'm wondering if overstating, overblowing some of the risks are... Uh, happens because of that intense interest and intense importance paid to further research. I've yet to see an article, a scientific medical article, conclude with the statement that no further research is required. What do you think about that, Julia, as a journalist? Oh, that's a, yeah, that's, kind of, that's an interesting way to put it. Um, I, I think well, one thing I see a lot of covering science is uh, we it's almost antithetical to innovation the way the research model is set up right now. So there's an interest in uh, physician researchers and researchers to seek, seek out money to support the research. And oftentimes uh, it, they're encouraged to look in, you know, to, to follow up on uh, what's already been done. Like a lot of questions are just never asked because they're, they're either too risky to get uh, a grant to cover them or, um, it's too difficult to get funding in a particular area because there's not very much interest in it, even if it's important. Um, and I, I think we're actually moving into um, maybe even less of that because, you know, I think in the UK in 2014, they're going to start looking at um, impact in a new way that includes things like social media and uh uh, you know how, and so yeah, so social media and public interest in uh, particular areas of research, and I just wonder how much you know whether we're moving towards a popularity contest, um, which is kind of what I think you're suggesting a little bit. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so I don't know if that did that answer your question. Sorry. Yes, it, yes, it does. Okay. And I, I'm just going to drill down a little bit further into it because it flows from the fear factor, and that is it gets into politics. Um, you were mentioning that you speak with politicians. I've never been as high as the politicians you're talking about, but I have been an elected politician. And the fact of the matter is that when something surfaces that looks serious, you have to be seen to do something, to respond mm -hmm. appropriately, and research is often a good answer. Now, it, it's often genuinely a good answer, but on the other hand, it may just be uh, a way of avoiding having to confront something which really does need avoiding, confronting or whatever, uh, in order to get the problem under control. Now, I know I'm being harsh, but what do you think about that that I've just said? Yeah, that, that when I was covering the Tamiflu, so the, there was this, People like that at the British Medical Journal were raising questions and at the Cochrane Collaboration about the evidence for the, um, for Tamiflu. And one of the things that came up again and again was that it, you know, the evidence base is a little too patchy for the kinds of claims and investments that have been made in Tamiflu as part of pandemic preparations. Um, but there is no other alternative. So public health, oh, the public health people I spoke to were 
kind of saying to me, you know, what else? We need to be seen to be doing something, and uh, Tamiflu is better than nothing. It might not be the best. Maybe, um, you know, maybe we'll have better medications that come along. Uh, but, but they're, you know, they're. I, I feel for public health in that way because, uh, you know, as you just said, they they have they have to be seen to be doing something, and and sometimes, uh, you know, that there there isn't a great alternative. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think that's a very fair analysis. In other words, um, there are things you have to do when there's apparently nothing much to be done because there's an expectation, and that's an expectation at times of doctors and scientists and politicians and journalists and the rest of it. Um, what I think I've got from both of you is the message that we have to be really very careful and feel very responsible in the way that we convey information so that we are not generating fear uh, that breaks up families, that disturbs lives, that undermines people. Um, we should not do that, is the message. We should, on the other hand, rely on... Um, Hard, hard evidence or empirical evidence and we should rely on human stories of success um, of uh, real life um, to show that we have in fact a heart now that's my statement now Julia I want you to I want you to answer this question what, what's your message for family caregivers it would be the Similar to my message for journalists, I guess I'm an advocate for empowering readers, empowering patients with clean, evidence-based information. Um, and even if people aren't always rational actors, as we've seen, sometimes we're, we're more moved by stories and uh, hard evidence. I think if we did a better job of informing people and, and pointing them to good sources of information, um, I think they'd make better evidence-informed decisions. So I guess that would be my message for family caregivers. Now, when it comes to a state that so many countries are in, and that is money short at the level of government and among people as well, there have to be priorities, Julia, and at least that's the way I look at it. And so in this question of fear and overblowing, uh, this is a supplementary question, but do you think that our priorities take sufficient account of the care needs of people and perhaps are overly influenced by things like fear factors. That is what I'll call the distribution of funds to services within healthcare systems being affected by the fear factors. What do you think? Well, when I looked into um, what moves people to actually get vaccinated, the answer I got from the leading global researchers was that we actually don't know. So we don't know, uh, we don't have a very good sense of why people um, opt in and other vaccines. And of course, it's a complex thing. It's whether they have access to it. Um, it's about local beliefs that, that uh, you know, that occur at the level of, uh, you know, various states and countries. Um, but one thing I would like to see more of is a, you know, a better understanding of, of, of why people do what they do, why people make the health choices they make, and then responding to those instead of just taking this paternalistic approach um, to public health and uh, to health decision-making and, and pushing people to maybe do things based on fear or 
uh, other things that, that maybe aren't the best for public health in the end. <laughs> Just to be a bit provocative, what that's pushing, I think, Julia, is research that lies outside what I'd call the conventional types of research that medicine, medical science does, and into areas of psychology and mm -hmm. motivation and what human opinions are formed around and those kinds of things. Now, we would be into another long episode if, if we were to discuss that one. So forgive me for, <laughs> for kind of finishing on that point. But I want to wind up by saying, because it, unfortunately it's the, the end, we've come to the end of this episode. Thank you to both of you, Des and Julian, because what you've done I think, is to alert family caregivers and family members to the point that they really do need to ask questions, they really do need to press for answers, and they really do need to ask about quest difficult questions like, how fearful should I be? Now, people won't actually ask that question in so many words, but that is a kind of future-oriented question Doctors might call it prognosis. I call it giving your best guess about what the future holds because the future is the thing, as you know, many people worry about most. So having given us, both of you, a recipe for approaching that, whether as journalists, physicians, or family caregivers, thank you very much. I want to thank you to our, say thank you to our listeners we'd like to hear your comments on this episode and from our listeners I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show our next episode will be people with special needs living, learning and working in the Camp Hill community please join us, same spot on the internet talk to you then Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.